right, having said that, why don't we jump into today's passage and we're in Mark chapter 6, verses 30 to 44. Mark chapter 6, verses 30 to 44. Mark chapter 6, verses 30 to 34, oh, sorry, 44 rather. Uh, and the word of God reads, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they'd done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing, and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we pray that you would be with us as we continue our series in Mark's Gospel. Uh, and just before we pray for anything, we want to pray for the people that aren't well, uh, that are a bit under the weather and haven't been able to join us today. Uh, Lord, we care about them and we lift them up to you in the name of our Lord that you would bring healing to their bodies so that they can join us in worship in person next week. Lord, I pray that as we go through uh, this next part in our series of Mark in chapter 6, uh, that you would help us to understand the significance of this miracle that appears in all four Gospels, uh, what it means that Jesus fed miraculously this many people, not just the significance of what it meant back then, uh, but what it is that you were speaking to us today. And we pray that we would be receptive to the sound of your voice, that we would be transformed by your message. May you watch over the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, just a, a short disclaimer before I begin my sermon. Sorry, my iPhone. Yeah, there we go. Um, there are many things... Uh, that I think people consider important when it comes uh, to pastoral ministry. Uh, when it comes to being a pastor, people think that you know preaching is the most important thing or a pastor's ability to teach well is the most important thing or their time management is the most important thing. You know, some people think, you know, a pastor having charisma is the most important thing. I don't have that gift. Um, but don't get me wrong. Th these are all useful things to have uh, but the longer I serve in ministry, uh, I would say that arguably the most important thing for any minister uh, or leader is 
to be able to love his people well. And it's something I thought about a lot this week as I was studying this passage to prepare this sermon. Uh, because today's sermon, uh, we get to see the heart of the great shepherd that he has for his sheep. And it caused me to reflect uh, quite a bit on my role here, what my job here is at FLM. And I just want to make it clear to you before I begin my sermon that, you know, I do have a busy schedule. I do have a lot during the week. Um, but out of everything that I commit my time to, um, I want you to know that you guys are my primary ministry. Um, and so I say this because, you know, if you ever need prayer, if you ever need to catch up and talk about something going on in your life, if you just want to chat, like meet up for a, a coffee, I love coffee, um, I will always, always make time for you. I don't want you guys to ever hesitate because you think, oh, Jay's too busy, his time's precious. My time is precious, but it's precious because I want to reserve it for you guys. Uh, so my number and my email is on, my, uh, on the Instagram page. So if you ever want to hit me up, for whatever reason, uh, message me, call me. I will make time for you guys. And uh, I, I can't promise I'll have all the answers to your questions um, and all the solutions to your problems. But I can promise I will listen. I will be there to listen to you guys, to support you wherever I can, and to pray for you guys, to lift God up in prayer for all of you guys, uh, no matter what kind of a season in life that you're going in. It would be my joy and my honor to walk with you through that season. All right. So last week, uh, we, we had a mini interlude. Remember, the disciples were commissioned on a short-term mission trip, and then we had an interlude, and we were introduced to this, this man by the name of King Herod. And we got to see the death of John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus. And in unpackaging those verses, we really got to see what kind of a man that Herod was. He was really just, just the worst, like an incestuous pedophile of a man uh, who at one point, he actually had hope in his life. God was knocking on the door of his heart through the man of John the Baptist, but we see that Herod ultimately slaps away that hand of grace because he has this prophet of God beheaded at the request of his daughter and his wife. And so rather than responding to that conviction of sin that God laid on his heart, he chose to be more consumed by his reputation and what people thought about him. Now, in today's passage, we jump back from Herod back to the apostles who, you know, they've come back from their short-term mission trip. Uh, they were empowered by the Holy Spirit to teach God's word. And not only that, they were given the power to exercise authority over the kingdom of darkness. And so these apostles went out in obedience and they emulated everything that they saw Jesus do. And in today's passage, their, their mission trip, it's come to an end and they've come back to find Jesus and according to verse 30, uh, the first thing they did upon their return was that they, they came looking for Jesus to have like a, a debriefing session. And they shared with Jesus, they were probably excited, like, and they shared with Jesus everything that they witnessed, all that they'd done, all that they taught. And they were probably dying to share the details of everything they'd gone through. Because never in their wildest dreams did they ever think they'd get the opportunity to experience something like this. Because on the hierarchy of Jewish society at the time, these apostles didn't rank anywhere near the top. 
not even in the middle. A lot of these guys were blue-collar workers. You know, you had fishermen that weren't really educated. You had tax collectors who I explained previously. They're really equated to, you know, what we have today in, in terms of organized crime and loan sharking. These guys were not the religious elites. They weren't the aristocrats of society. These guys were nobodies. And so for them to go from being nobodies to having this power and authority to preach and exercise power over demons, um, these apostles probably came back from their mission trip ready to take on the world. However, despite their overflowing passion, uh, Jesus knows that they're physically worn out. And I don't know how many of you have gone on short-term missions before. I know that quite a few of you, we had people give testimonies about Fiji and Vanuatu missions that they went on. I know a few of you have gone, but even if you go on like a church retreat, that alone is enough to physically drain you. And so Jesus says in verse 31, knowing that they're physically drained, he says, come away by yourselves. Let's go to a desolate place and rest for a while. In other words... Having just come back from a short-term mission trip, Jesus is saying, let's go on a short-term retreat. And so they get in a boat. But there's a problem. Because people see where they're going. You know, up until this point, people have been crowding and like fangirling over Jesus. But having witnessed what the apostles accomplished during their mission trip, they also want a piece of the apostles now. And so they're all flooding, not just to see Jesus, but the apostles. So much so that the passage says that these men couldn't even snack. They couldn't even eat. And so as they were embarking on their short-term mission trip, verse 33 says, many of them saw where they were going. They recognized them and they ran there on foot from all the towns, not just one town, all the towns and got there ahead of them. The people saw where the apostles, they saw that the apostles were leaving with Jesus and they, they guessed where they're going. And so they went on ahead. They went from town. They were running on foot, town to town, to get to the place where the apostles would arrive before they arrived. And as they passed from town to town, people probably you know, asked them, where are you going? Where, where are all these people going? We're going to see Jesus, the miracle worker. We're going to see the apostles who seem to have that same power that Jesus has. And so by verse 34, when Jesus and the apostles arrive in the desolate place, there is already a great crowd waiting for them. And verse 44 gives us an idea of how many uh, make up this great crowd. It says 5,000 men. 5,000 men. And even though it says 5,000, uh, the number was probably actually triple this. Because uh, 5,000 men, there were probably women and children. Generally, when they gave a figure like this, it didn't include women and children. So if you were to account for the women and children that were present as well, it would have been in excess of 15,000 people in the desert waiting for Jesus and the apostles. So much for their retreat. And so for this, you know, for the apostles, this kind of attention... Uh, it probably was exciting initially, to be honest. I'm not going to lie. For them, it probably would have been exciting. But there does come a point where you do want a spare moment to yourself just to be able to relax and eat. Um, in fact, I probably wouldn't be surprised if the apostles saw the crowd and started to get a bit frustrated because all this attention 
meant that they weren't even able to have a meal. But despite how the apostles felt, uh, verse 35 shows us the heart of Jesus. Because it says that when he went ashore, not the apostles, but when he went ashore, he, Jesus, saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus gets out of the boat. He sees 15,000 men, women, and children, a mega crowd. And when he sees them, he sees a people, a massive crowd of people that are looking for answers, that have been robbed and they're devoid of any kind of spiritual hope, and they're looking for guidance. Because if you think about it, in the context of what we've studied in Mark so far, they had nothing going for them. Like in terms of secular leadership and government, who did we discover last week was their ruler? It was Herod, that incestuous pedophile of a king that really had no borders, no boundaries when it came to morality and etiquette. And if that's not bad enough, if the secular leadership was corrupted, so was the spiritual leadership. Because who were the spiritual leaders of the day? It was the Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And these people, you know, they, they were really obsessed with binding people up with more rules, more traditions, outside the scope of what God had commanded. And so they, they offered, you know, traditional shackles, but no real spiritual food. And so Jesus looks upon these 15,000 people, and he knows where they are. He knows what they want. He knows what they need. And so in his heart, he feels mercy and compassion upon them. They'd been starved of spiritual food. And so what Jesus does immediately is he begins teaching them. He begins feeding them spiritually by sharing a word of hope and truth into their lives that they needed so desperately. Despite how physically exhausted and drained he might have been, Jesus preached and taught and the passage indicates that he did it until the sun started to go down because the apostles come up to him in verses 35 and 36. And they say to him, Jesus, this is a desolate place. This is a desert. We're in the middle of nowhere. And the hour is now late. Send them, the 15,000, send them away to go into the surrounding country, countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. It's getting dark and it's probably getting close to around 6 p.m. because that's when the sun sets in that region of the world. And for these people, they've come from so many other parts of Galilee, which roughly is probably, if you look at a map, it's about one and a half, two hours away. By the time they get home, one and a half, two hours, if they make that trip home, by the time they get home, everything is already closed. The shops are closed, the restaurants are closed, and they wouldn't have anything to eat if they made that trek home now. They could probably make it in time to a local village, and there might be one or two places still open, but even then, they're in the middle of nowhere. There's not many restaurants in the nearby villages, and even if there were, not enough to feed 15,000 people. Like, imagine 15,000 people rock up to Mount Druid and just walk down sharp... Waterloo Road, 
and look for something to eat. There's a few restaurants there, not enough to feed 15,000 people. And so Jesus, being aware of this, says to his apostles, you give them something to eat. You can do it. 15,000 people, no problems. And his disciples were like, what? What? They say, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And to give you a bit of like a context of how much 200 denarii is worth, one denarii was considered an average day's pay back in the day. So 200 denarii would be you know, 200 days out of a 365-day year. Um, if we were to equate it by today's standards, I looked up the ABS, the Australian Bureau of Statistics, and uh, the average income for a household is about 95000 if you equate like 200 denarii, it really comes out to about $55,000 worth of food. And so for the apostles, they're like, oh yeah, sure, 55,000. Let me just pull that out of my wallet. No, they're like, what are you talking about? We don't have $55,000. We don't have enough money to feed ourselves, let alone 15,000 people. But Jesus is aware of this, obviously. He's already aware they don't, they don't have 200 denarii. He knows they don't have the ability, the capacity, all the resources to be able to feed 15,000 people. And so what he does do is he tells the disciples, find out what you do have. See what little you do have, and I want you to bring it. Bring it to me. And to have a look, and what they do have is five loaves and two fish. It's not even enough to feed the 12, let alone 15,000 people. But they bring what little they do have, and they offer it up. They commit it to Jesus. And Jesus has the 15,000 sit on the grass in groups of hundreds and fifties, which is actually an echo of what happens in the Exodus. We'll come back to that in a moment. But then he takes the loaves, the five loaves and the two fish, lifts them up, lifts them up to heaven, and he prays. And he breaks the bread and he has the, the apostles distribute it amongst the 15,000. And the result, according to verses 42 and 43, is that they all ate and they were all satisfied. They were full. And not only that, they took up 12 baskets of broken bread and fish. Like 12 baskets of leftovers. Now, over the years, not just with this miracle, but with a lot of miracles, a lot of atheists and scientists try to debunk the supernatural aspect of a lot of these miracles. Um, but let me just give you a bit of perspective as to what took place here. Uh, I went to New Zealand Costa back in January, and I had the privilege of meeting a lady who is a pastor and the wife of the senior of a sister church, uh, the past, wife of the pastor of a sister church, Gold Coast Full Gospel. Uh, some of you guys know her, Pastor Hong. And I love going to Costa because I get to meet a lot of new people that love God, that, that are in ministry. And I feel like it's a very big learning uh, learning curve for me because I get to see how other people preach, how other people do ministry. But she's probably one of the most memorable people I've ever met at Costa. And not just because of her heart for God and the kingdom, but because of how much... This woman can eat. Oh my goodness, she eats so much. Like I sat down and had dinner with her 
and I think two of the nights I, I, got, I got to sit with her and we were just talking about ministry and she went back for seconds and then she went back for thirds. And then she had dessert. And then she went for seconds. And then she went for thirds. And they gave her a new plate each time. So by the time she was finished, she just had plates stacked up in front of her. And I looked at her in horror. I was like, where, where is this all going? How are you eating this food? Because I used to eat a lot. Like, I used to eat a lot of Maccas back in the day. I could finish a family meal on my own. Like, two Big Macs, two cheeseburgers, four chips, and six nuggets, and four drinks. Like, not the drinks, but the food I could finish on my own. And I was blown away by how much food she was putting away. It was amazing. But why am I sharing all this with you? The reason I'm sharing all of this with you is because out of those 15,000 people that were present, I guarantee you there were at least one or two Pastor Hongs in that group that could finish five loaves and two fish on their own, even as an appetizer. This miracle cannot be explained by a natural means. That's why it's a supernatural event. You don't explain the supernatural with a natural explanation. That's what makes it a miracle. Because not only were the 15,000 fed, that in itself is a miracle of itself. But there were 12 baskets of leftovers of bread and fish. And it seemed whatever Jesus accomplished in this passage, he somehow supernaturally multiplied the food. So much so that what was left after was more than what they began with. And that's how today's passage ends. Now, you guys know that when I preach at the end of my sermons, I like to come to the, the so what. Any passage you study, I emphasize that. That's important. That's an important, that's probably the question to ask. So what? What does it mean for me today? And with a lot of sermons that are preached on this passage, you know, they like to go, nothing wrong with this, by the way, but it's, it tends to be this cliche, God saw the need of his people, fed his people, therefore if you pray to God, God will fulfill your need as well. And that's true. Anything we have, any need we have, we should be lifting it up to the Lord in prayer. Uh, but I want to come at it from a different angle, and none of these are really connected, but I'm hoping uh, they will be helpful for you, observations or applications. The first observation I want to make from today's passage, and it's an application, is that we need to make time to get alone with God, even when things are going well. We need to get alone with God, even when things are going well. You know, when, when the apostles came back from their mission trip, Jesus knew where they were, like, emotionally. They were just bursting at the seams with excitement, ready to share all the victories that they experienced on the mission field. They were probably, you know, in their minds, they probably had an itinerary set out. Look, we experienced victory after victory. We won people to Christ. We cast out demons. We just really stepped over the kingdom of darkness, and we accomplished so much for God's kingdom. And in their minds, they were thinking, let's keep this momentum going. Let, let, let's, let's start organizing a second mission trip. We're ready to go out and do this all over again. And that seems like the logical thing to do, doesn't it? Like when you've accomplished so much, 
Why mess with success? Keep it going. But for Jesus, after he hears all their reports and he sees how excited they are, Jesus has something else in mind. Because he says, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. He tells them to get some rest. And a lot of commentators believe that Jesus gave this instruction because he knew the, you know, the apostles were physically exhausted from their mission trip. He knew they were drained. And he knew they were in need of physical rest. And there probably is an element of truth to that because it's not an unreasonable assumption to make. Uh, anyone that goes on... I, the last mission trip I went on, I came and I just slept for two days. I was so tired. But I... Studying this passage this week, I think there was more to it than that. Because for me, I remember the last time I came back from a mission trip. I was so tired... I was so drained. And if you come back from a mission trip, where's the most logical place you would go to rest? You'd go home, wouldn't you? Like, what better place to rest than your bed? Like, if I go on holidays, I, I still want, I miss my bed. I like my blanket. I like my bed. I like my dog curling up with me. The bed, your home is the best place to rest, isn't it? But Jesus doesn't tell them to go home. He says, great work, everyone. He doesn't say, like, great work, let's go home, get some rest, and let's meet in a, in a few days. No, he says, hey, guys, let's go into the desert to get some rest. It's a bizarre place to go rest, isn't it? The desert where there's nothing, no bed, no house, no roof, no shelter. Let's go into the desert to rest. And I think there was a greater intention behind that command beyond simply just physical rest. Because whenever the, the scriptures speak about a desert or a wilderness, you'll find that it's often spoken as a place of significance. Because throughout Israel's history, the desert has become a place that's known where people either connect with God or reconnect with God when they've fallen into sin. Where they connect with God or they reconnect with God when they need his help. And so I personally believe that Jesus' instruction was beyond simply finding a place to rest, but an instruction for them to get alone and reconnect with God, and what's more, to establish a practice and a pattern for his apostles to get alone with God, especially when things are going well. And I think it's important for us today because I think for us today, we, we have this tendency to limit our use of the power of prayer to when there's a crisis. You know, I need help, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to pray. And nothing wrong with that. that. That's the right thing to do. But God's desire for our prayer really is for us to converse, commune, and spend time with Him in all seasons of life. Not just when we need help but even when we want to celebrate. That's why if you read through all 150 chapters that make up the book of Psalms, you find Psalms written by writers in all seasons of life. You find Psalms where the, the, the psalmist is lifting up a prayer when he's in anguish or when he's in pain, but you also find Psalms where it's just nothing but celebration, 
where they're just enjoying God. Some chapters are just simply a worship of God because the writer is so in love with him. And I think this is a habit that should form a normal part of our walk with Jesus today. Just dedicating time to be alone with him, conversing with him in all seasons so we can just enjoy him. If you have a bad day at work, converse with him on your journey home. Or if you have a good day at work, celebrate with him in prayer on your journey home. And, you know, I don't know if this sounds crazy to you. I actually remember, I don't even remember the preacher, but I remember he said this in a sermon at a church I attended like 15 years ago. And I still remember it because I found that weird, but it's been so helpful. He said, go on a date with God. What? Go on a date? And what he meant was like, make time to be alone with God. Not just like 30 minutes before you sleep, but quality time. Like go for a walk to a park, sit on a bench. Just enjoy God's creation while you're conversing with him. Go for a walk down, you know, I used to go to roads. There's, there's like a nice walking path there. Just go on a walk with God. Put in some earphones, play some music, and just converse with God while you're walking and enjoy your time with him, even when times are good. But we need to learn to get alone with him. Simply enjoy being with God, even when things are going well. Point number two, commit even the small things to God. You know, when we read about Jesus asking the apostles to feed the 5,000, you know, when we read about the apostles in general, they seem a quite a bit dopey. Like They don't seem to have a high IQ. They don't seem very bright. But it's easy to be critical of their responses. Because in today's passage, how do they respond to Jesus' request to feed the 15,000? You know, they, they look at themselves. They're like, you know, physically, financially, we don't have the capacity or the resources to fulfill this. We can't do this. And in terms of food, we've got five loaves and two fishes. We can't do this. And it's easy to be critical of the way they respond. But what is crazy is that they look at what little they do have and they commit that to God. Five loaves and two fish. And Jesus uses it and he multiplies it to receive glory for himself. And you know, as critical as we are about the apostles, how they react into situations like this, I think there are times in our lives where we have similar circumstances to the apostles. Different scenario, but same circumstances. Because often when it comes to the service of God's kingdom, often our default response, it's not too dissimilar to the apostles. Because what do they do? They focus on their inability. They focus on their lack of capacity. And I think we do that as well, quite often. Because as followers of God, you know, we, we have a role to play in this kingdom. Not just the leaders, not just the pastors. Everyone that sits under the authority of God's word and commits their life to Christ, we have a role to play. God has bestowed, according to his scripture, he has bestowed upon everyone spiritual gifts and talents that are to be exercised in the advancement of his kingdom and his glory. But we have this temptation sometimes to think that what we have to offer Christ, that it's too small for God to use. 
And in thinking that it's too small, we allow opportunities to serve God and love our neighbor pass us by. And when this happens, you know, sometimes we might even think it's an act of humility. I'm being humble because, you know, I'm just, I, I can't offer. What can I offer? And we have this low view of ourselves and we equate that to humility. But I would say that that's not an act of humility. And this isn't a condemnation on anyone. But I don't think that's an act of humility. Because having a low view of self really is because you have a low view of God. Even if you don't think you have much to offer, commit what little you do have to God and prayerfully ask him to use it for his kingdom and his glory. Because in today's passage, as critical as we might be for how the apostles respond, their ultimate response is that they commit what little they do have, five loaves and two fish, and we see God use that mightily. And 15,000 are fed with what little the apostles had to offer. Sometimes the greatest opportunities to give glory to Christ isn't to embark on a massive endeavor, but to commit even the little things to him. Because it's especially in those situations that we find the power of God being made perfect in our weakness. So commit even the small things to God. Final point. Remember that you are the object of God's love and compassion. I've explained in previous sermons that the, the purpose of the miracles that we find in the Gospels, it's not so that we can pursue a life of miracles. That wasn't the purpose. The purpose was to point to the fact that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. He was the Messianic King, the one that was prophesied and promised from the Old Testament. Because the miracles fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. That, you know, they described what would happen when this king appeared. And the miracles fulfilled that. And we have this tendency to sometimes think, okay, the Old Testament was about the Father, the New Testament is about the Son. But that's not actually true. In fact, I would say that to truly understand the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, the only way to truly understand it is to read it with the, the awareness that every passage in the Old Testament points to Jesus. That everything we read in the Old Testament only finds its true fulfillment in Jesus Christ. That's why when you read through the Old Testament, if you read through it, I don't know if you've read the Bible cover to cover, if you read from Genesis to Malachi especially, you will get goosebumps because you'll read passages that undisputably echo the coming of Christ. For example, in today's passage, we find that Jesus, second person of the Trinity, of the Godhead, that God incarnate is with 15,000 people in the wilderness, in the desert. And if you look to the Old Testament, this echoes what happens in the Exodus because God was with his people. Where? In the desert. After they come out of Egypt, they spend time in the wilderness and God is with him. And just like in the Exodus where God supernaturally feeds his people with manna. Jesus, in today's passage, echoes what happens in the Old Testament by supernaturally feeding his people using the bread and the fish. 
At the beginning of time, Adam and Eve, tempted by Satan, they fall into sin. Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, is approached by Satan, and he overcomes temptation and sin. And he doesn't fall into it the way Adam did. Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness because of their disobedience to God. Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, he spends 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. Imperfect obedience to God. When we read through the Old Testament, we see so many instances where Israel failed. But Jesus succeeds. Where Adam fell short, but Jesus perfectly obeyed. Even the animal sacrificial system in the Old Testament. It was a temporary way that Israel could maintain their communion and their relationship with God. But in the New Testament, we find its true fulfillment. In the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. There's so many things in the Old Testament that echo Christ and foreshadow and point to Christ, that find its true fulfillment in Christ. And you can just go on and on and on and on. There's so many. And it's crazy how from the beginning of time, at the moment that Adam fell into sin and doomed humanity to the curse of sin, that God at the same time was pulling the strings and orchestrating the events of history where if Adam brought the curse of death, that through Jesus, he brings the blessing of life and life eternal. What's the point of all of this? The point I want to make is I want to reveal the heart that is behind all of this. The motivation that drove God to move heaven and earth and orchestrate all this for you. Eternal life, a restored relationship with him. The motivation and the heart of God behind all of this was his love for you. Today's passage is a glimpse of that love. Because when this messianic king sees the 15,000 who are without hope, who are in need, we see that he feels deep compassion. And that word compassion in the Greek, it literally means from the very depths of his guts. He felt from his inner being compassion and love for them. And where does this compassion come from? The gospel tells us this compassion comes from his love to his people, his love for us. And sometimes we just need to stop for a minute and remind ourselves of this, because this is a fallen world that we live in. It is a crazy life that we live, a life that gets so difficult at times, where there's seasons where we just endure unspeakable pain and anguish. Situations that leave our hearts feeling raw, exposed, and vulnerable. But when you're in the midst of all this, I encourage you to read this passage again and read through the Gospels. And reflect on the heart of the great shepherd for his sheep. Remind yourself that you are the object of his love and compassion, no matter what's going on in your life. Because as you reflect on his love, 
how crazy and transformative this is, how deep his love is. This reflection will bring healing to your heart. Because if you think about it, the only being in existence to have ever loved with a perfect, flawless love is God himself. No one's loved like God loves. I mentioned in my prayer that a mother's love is really the purest form of love that humanity has to offer. But even that is flawed. But we have in God the one being that has perfect love, like nothing else this world has to offer. And for whatever reason, from the beginning of time when humanity chose to break away from God, God has been moving heaven and earth to orchestrate restoration to this relationship. And he's done it because you are the object of this perfect love. If you're hurting, if you're struggling, know that he has compassion and abundance for you. And if you're struggling with hope, remind yourself that at the very center of God's heart, if you were to look at God's heart and drill to the very center, at the very center of it is you. You were chosen by him to be the primary, not the secondary, the primary object of his perfect love. So on that note, I want us to enter into a time of prayer. I don't know what kind of a season you're going through in your life at the moment, but this is a reminder that God's people always need, that we are the object of his love. Because even if we're not going through a difficult season in life now, we know looking back, we have gone through seasons where we, we really could have done with this reminder that we are the object of his love, that when the great shepherd looks upon his sheep, his heart is flowing in abundance with compassion and love. And in being transformed by that, we'll see that even the small things that we have to offer, this God that demonstrates perfect love desires to use even what little we have to offer for his glory. And above all that, he desires for us to get alone with him, not just in times of crisis, but when things are going well. So in this moment, uh, I do encourage you all to pray to this Father that this week would mark the beginning where you grow in a greater and greater revelation of his love for you and his desire to use you as an agent in his kingdom. So let's lift all these things up to him in prayer. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for the words of Scripture, your word that we treasure. We thank you that through your word that we not only receive life, but we get a glimpse into the heart of the Great Shepherd. Father, I pray for all of us that as we grow in our knowledge of the breadth and depth of your transforming love, that as we grow in our understanding of this, that you would bring healing to our hearts, transformation to our hearts, so that when we look at what we have to offer, that we would never think that it's too little, but that we would be willing to commit it to you with a heart of expectation, knowing that you are a God that uses even the little things to bring great glory for yourself. And Lord, for all of us, I pray that we would come to a place that we would enjoy committing time to you, not just in moments of crisis, in seasons of difficulty, but especially when things are going well. That even in our joy and celebration, that we would share these moments with you. And so, Lord, I pray for all seasons in life that we would be a people in FLM that constantly remind ourselves and remind each other that we are the object of your perfect love. That even if we have moments where our hearts do feel raw, vulnerable and exposed, that you have sealed our status as sons and daughters of the Most High God, that no kingdom of darkness, no situation or adversity can change that. So we thank you that through Christ you have made this possible. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.